Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 83. I'm Jim Cornell and this is the weekly podcast from the biotech. And this week we have a very interesting look, or I guess listen, at the world of artificial intelligence and its use in drug discovery. The company in Silico Medicine is collaborating with the University of Toronto to test AI-designed molecules against undruggable cancer targets. And I appreciate if you're from there, you don't call it Toronto, having lived there for many years. To tell us all about artificial intelligence in drug discovery is Kyle Trotina, Alliance Manager of AI Platforms at Insilico Medicine. And I'll let him do the introductions to both himself and the company. I'm Kyle Chitina, I'm the Alliance Manager here at Insilico Medicine. That basically means that I manage our projects with big pharma, biotech, and academics. My background, my PhD was in infectious disease and using multi-omics technology to answer questions in that area. I've been with the company for about a year, Boston-based, but the company goes back actually really far compared to sort of the age of this field where there's been a recent insurgence of AI and drug discovery and development. We really clocked back to 2014, where we started really as an academic group. So our founder, Alex Shevrenkov, started his lab at Johns Hopkins in 2014. Funny enough, I was actually getting my PhD at the same time, just on the other side of Baltimore. We might have passed each other in the hallway at some point, and I didn't realize at the time. And at that time, him and his lab were uh, really focused on developing algorithms that could make drug discovery faster and more successful. So I mean, this group wrote some really, really, really clever sort of breakthrough stuff, especially in um, generative adversarial networks along those lines and founded the company in 2014. So early on, we were a services, like service-based company. So essentially starting collaborations with big pharma and some biotechs um, in the area and then more regionally as well for drug development projects. So things like identifying new targets for drugs, designing new drugs, uh, were kind of really a lot of our common use cases. And then as an academic group, they really, they needed sort of academic government funding for a lot of the sort of early work, but now transitioning to really focus on the company in the few years sort of following up to that. Now, around that time, sort of mid-2010s was a really interesting time. Uh, in the field because we saw a lot of these new deep learning systems that were outperforming humans and some things that traditionally humans have been the only ones that have been able to do it, like image recognition, voice recognition, text recognition, other jobs as well. So through 2016 and through 2019, there was this huge rush because of these more basic mathematical developments. There was this giant rush of competitors. There were maybe a thousand competitors from around the world at that time. It seemed like any professor with a paper in the field wanted to start a company. And then it was in 2019 when Insilico launched their own platform, including a SaaS product. They also work in the service spaces as well, um, as well as in 2019, they started their own therapeutic programs. Now, this was really, really important for the company because especially at that time, some companies were focused mostly on being AI software company. Other companies were really focused on building out their pipeline. Uh, but in silicon medicine is always really focused on both it's turned out to be a competitive advantage because you can use the pipeline to validate your software you're not relying on anyone else to do that but then from 2019 to 2023 there's been this really huge like explosion in, and in silico in terms of ongoing commercialization and further development of our generative ai algorithms but the niche as a whole has actually seen consolidation so a lot of these companies that focus 
only on the pipeline or only on the platform have been frankly struggling. Some have gone away. And now at the time, there's actually very few companies in our niche that have reached the level of sustained clinical development. And I think we really are leaders now in this area. So we now have this like really robust and growing pipeline, 31 programs against 29 targets, all developed internally with our own AI platform, full platforms. And we consistently publish peer-reviewed papers, so a few times a month usually, which is good even for an academic lab. And we've raised really a substantial amount of venture capital as well. I think over $400 million of venture capital to date, a privately held company at the moment as well. And we've also been awarded some really huge accolades. So that's sort of uh, our story in a nutshell. (laughs) I joined about a year ago. I was an academic for a long time in the space and I was kind of watching the story from afar and wanted to jump into biotech to be more on the commercial side of things, learn sort of be at the cutting edge. And so I'm really excited to be here. It's an area that, as you've been talking about the history of the company, it's not been around for six months. Why is it, do you think that, AI has been news for the last six months, and yet it's been around for a lot longer than that? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think there's there's quite a lot of reasons for it. The sort of recent spurts of AI, especially in the last year, there have been quite a few things that have just become a bit more apparent to the public eye. Things like expanded use of large language models, especially for ChatGPT, Vision learning, especially in self-driving cars, has really expanded, as well as VR, um, not just for the gaming industry, but it also has pretty huge applications in the military as well, in drones and other similar applications. So I think there have been like really specific applications that have kind of captured people's imagination, and that's been really picked up by the media. Obviously, there's a lot of money in it as well. I think a lot of it as well is everybody seems to be concentrating on, understandably, to some extent, maybe jobs and the negative ways in which AI might impact people's lives in the future. Yet there doesn't seem to be as much concentrating on the kind of thing that you're doing where you're helping people through AI. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I tend to be pretty optimistic uh, when it comes to that, simply because I know myself and I, I know a lot of people and when people are more productive, they usually don't lay people off. They they hire more <laughs> so that they can make even more money in areas that aren't yet like automatable. So we'll see how it actually pans out. I mean, we, we have to just like keep, keep living and being at the forefront, pushing these things along. But in, in terms of really hard problems like drug discovery and development, where uh, there's a ton of data, this is not something that humans are very good at. Most drugs fail, something like 90% fail. If you look at the percentage of things that even make it into clinical trials, it's even worse than that. And so there's a ton of data. We have to be able to see patterns that humans just can't see clearly, <laughs> that they just can't see. And also there's a lot of sort of repetitious aspect to certain parts of drug discovery and development, terms of data analysis, aggregation, building systems that AI can help with as well in terms of efficiency. So it makes sense. AI is kind of built for this. Uh, it's just a matter of shaping it in the right way to actually make it effective. You mentioned before some of the platforms and some of the drug discovery that you've been doing. Could you maybe run through some of those? Yeah, no problem. I can talk about it really at a high level. So on the software side, and as a side note, 80% of what we do resource-wise is actually pretty hardcore research and development in labs. We have a fully automated lab, fully robotic lab. Um, and so you showed that is like really cool and everyone should check out on LinkedIn and YouTube. Our CEO loves posting videos of him like 
dancing to different music with robots. So it's a lot of fun. And the lab itself looks pretty futuristic. Uh, but I'm talking about the software side, which is where I personally work. And we have what's called the Pharma AI Suite. And this suite of software is comprised of three different platforms. So we have Biology 42, um, which really focuses on identifying the targets that we're going to develop drugs against and answering biological questions about things like what is the relevance and impact of targeting different parts of biology and different diseases, maybe different pathways or specific genes, um, or the impact of certain drugs on that biology. Uh, we also have Chemistry 42. It's the second component. And this is really focused on making small molecules that are going to be effective in the clinic. So we're thinking about specific properties of those molecules, like novelty, potency, metabolic stability, drinkability, and safety. Um, and we imagine them from scratch. And then we have Medicine 42, which is really focused on clinical trial design and prediction. Is that all about partnerships with industry or do you do the whole process from drug discovery through to the trials? Yeah, great question. So we use this whole platform internally for all of our programs. So we pick our own target, we design our own drugs. And then when it gets to the point when they're ready to go into the clinic, we usually will partner with people who are actually really, really good at clinical trial design to get them into the clinic and through the next stage. And we've been pretty good at that so far. Uh, we have our, our lead candidate is in phase two. Can't see the data, but things seem to be going well. And we've actually outlicensed quite a few of our programs now. So sort of our, our first candidate was you know, QPCTL, is in, is in co-development in China with Boston uh, Pharma. We have another USP1 that's been outlicensed by Celixis. And another uh, very recent one was outlicensed, the Menorini Group. It's a CAT6 target small molecule. And all these are pretty enormous deals. We're talking uh, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's, a, it's really great progress. Right at the very beginning, how does that work? Is it a company that will come to you and say, we're looking to treat disease, whatever? Or is it just you looking at the potential for different small molecules and then trying to match that up with companies and diseases? Yeah, great question. It's, it is a little bit of both. Uh, the map making, it's, it's kind of a magical process that usually happens from both ends. So we have like our public pipeline that we show on our webpage. Anyone can go to that webpage, click on the different molecules that are sort of ready to be discussed with other groups where we have this whole like data room and really extensive lab validation of you know biological relevance and different properties that we want these small molecules to have. And yeah, sometimes uh, other groups that are really great in this clinical trial will come to us. Uh, that certainly happens a lot, especially for the more popular targets and drugs. And sometimes we go to them. So we'll go out to conferences and networking events and really just look for companies where maybe their mission aligns with what we're trying to do, or maybe they're looking at a specific indication that this drug would be a really great fit for based on the data that we have. Um, and the conversations go from there. So we have, we have whole BD teams kind of spread all throughout the world to do this type of work, and they're, they're doing really good work. Right at that very beginning in the process, how do you come up with drugs and targets and kind of narrow it down? I mean, can you kind of talk me through that process of the beginning to coming up with something that looks promising? Yeah, absolutely. So picking a drug target is probably the most important part. It's also kind of the first. Understanding biological relevance, understanding what's druggable in a practical sense uh, these are all like really difficult, complicated questions. Otherwise, you know, we'd be a lot better at it. <laughs> uh, 
And so early on, we have what's called the Panomics app, which is a part of the Biology 42 platform. And our general approach at a really high level is to incorporate huge amounts of what are called multi-omics data and text data. So by multi-omics data, I'm talking about data-derived human patients with or without the disease. And the data types would be, for example, microarray, RNA-seq, proteomics, methylomics data. There's a ton, ton of others that we can incorporate into the platform as well. And really what we're looking at are at the molecular level, what are all the different changes that happen during you know, disease states in the relevant tissues? So you know, if it's leukemia or thymoblitis, to melanoma or the skin. And we feed all of these into these algorithmic models that we've already trained on huge amounts of data from many different biological disease states. And we've also looked at text data as well, which we think is actually really, really important kind of undervalued by people who maybe aren't as familiar with drug discovery and development. So the omics data gives us really great biological insight. So what is relevant or extremely dysregulated during the disease at the molecular level? But the text data can also be incredibly useful as well. And if you're looking for something, for example, it's really well validated by many different labs and have been published very extensively, um, then you know you might want to get something with a really strong text signal. So text data as a signal of novelty or anti-novelty is extremely useful. Very often people will also want to look at the competitive landscape of a given target or indication when they're trying to decide if they want to invest in it further. And so that type of data is also very, very useful. And therefore we have a bunch of different modules and tools to explore text data in the context of drug discovery within our software as well. Because in developing a drug, there's sort of the biology, the research, but there's also the business side of things. Companies want to make sure that, you know, if they pick that target, it's going to fit into their portfolio, that it fits according to their expertise, that it fits into their mission. Sometimes there's a variety of other considerations as well. And so we try to incorporate all those factors and make them configurable in the software. And the output is this sort of heat map where every row is a different gene and every column is one of our AI or statistical models that will provide an actual value to rank and sort all of those genes. And in our hands, at the top of that list, we see somewhere between 5x and 35x enrichment of the best targets at the top of that list. And so then what they can do and what we do is we go through all the genes at the top of that list and we do a deep dive into the biology and judge with actual human experts what is the quality of the evidence underlying these scores. And then is this something that we want to move forward with for validation and further development? So usually at that point, do some kind of validation in a lab model just to either validate what's already out there, or if it's a really novel target to validate it for the first time. That could be an in vitro model, ex vivo, could be a mouse model, really whatever we sort of have at hand. And then once we're really confident, hey, this is the target that we want to hit for this particular indication. And actually at In Silico Medicine, we try to find things that will hit multiple indications and specifically that are relevant to aging as well. But then we take that target and we hand it off to the Chemistry 42 team. And so they then look at the actual properties of the structure and the actual structure of those. We look at mostly protein targets here at Insilico. And they try to design small molecules that are going to bind to that target in a very specific, selective, and, and strong way to change the biology. And there's, there's sort of a, a lot going on there, kind of behind the scenes, uh, a lot of different modeling, mapping, there's different really generative approaches. So 
traditionally what people have done at this point is if you have a target, you want to design a drug against it. What a lot of people will do is they'll take what's called like a docking approach. So we have these libraries, either previously made molecules or perhaps molecules that could be easily synthesized and their slight variants. And then on a computer, they'll simulate those molecules binding to the correct part of the protein. Now, this works and has worked in some cases, but when it comes to identifying real novelty, you know, if everyone's fishing in the same tiny pond, they're all going to catch the same fish. And so the power of generative AI is that it can look at the problem and imagine new solutions. So I know in, in, in some cases, people think about ChatGPT and these hallucinations being a problem, but this sort of imaginative ability of AI in this particular space can be extremely useful because it's sort of thinking of things that either haven't been ma- imagined before or that a human wouldn't otherwise come to the conclusion of even trying that and sort of bringing up new ideas that makes things a bit more easily patentable. So that's that's really important because you, you want something that you can actually defend from a commercial perspective. You want something that is maybe even more effective than what humans would have previously come up with. And so the input to the software at that point or to our chemistry 42 platform with the target and then the profile of the molecule that we want to design. So for example, how novel do we want it to be? How potent do we want it to be? How metabolically stable, how druggable? It can also bias for certain safety measures as well. And then it imagines molecules from scratch pretty much indefinitely. So you can run these cycles of imagination as many times as you want. Um, And each cycle will generate some number of molecules based on how you configure it. And then you go into the lab and actually test and validate them. Uh, And one of the huge sort of powerful aspects here is that, you know, in our hands, when we published examples of this, we don't have to screen as many molecules. We don't have to screen these huge libraries and testing, you know, thousands to tens of thousands, some other Groups have tested met even more molecules. You know, we, we have one recent example, cyclin-dependent kinase, I think it's CDK20, where we only had to screen like a couple dozen molecules to get a nanomolar hit, which is like extremely powerfully binding molecule, which, you know, in the long run, in terms of the full program, you have to spend less time searching for a good drug. And then the overall cost of the program is a lot less because you're getting to the right answer faster or a really good answer fast. And then at that point, you know, it's really a matter of optimization. So making small changes to the molecule, testing it and validating it in different lab settings. So maybe new mouse models, new in vitro models, ex vivo models, new safety models, whatever the case might be. Uh, We also have other modeling software. And then we can really start to see, um, all right, well, how well is this going to perform in the clinic? And that's when we pass it to our clinical team and we start looking for organizations that we can outlicense with. Now, obviously, the higher level of validation for a given molecule, um, the more likely it is a group, you know, outlicensing group is going to feel confident enough to outlicense that molecule. But on the other hand, the earlier they get in, the better deal that they can get, right? <laughs> so if they if they wait too long, then everyone's in line and that's going to drive the price up. Usually if you wait until you know phase one trials for safety or phase two trial for efficacy, if you wait that long, you're probably too late and you're not going to get the best price. But you know, these are the balances that people try to weigh, and it really just depends on the organization you're working with. We hear a lot about targets being undruggable. Is AI helping to alleviate that? But kind of associated with that, are there targets that are still going to be undruggable regardless? That's a great question. To some extent, this is a, a little bit philosophical, but I'm going to give my opinion here. 
undruggable. And that the reason for that is undruggable simply means we can't drug it at the moment uh, or seemingly can't drug it at the moment. That doesn't necessarily mean that someone has tried or that, you know, it can't potentially be drugged if someone did try. But historically, there's specific types of molecules that have been drugged more often or that have been drugged at all. And so there are different ways to define druggability. I think that sort of loose ways is the one that I would propose. There's a lot of different things that can make a target, quote unquote, undruggable. And AI can really help with quite a few of them, actually. So first would be sort of structural unavailability. So when a protein is acting in a signaling pathway that is related to the development of a disease, there's usually certain parts of the protein that are involved in that process more than other parts. So if it's an enzyme, there's certain, maybe a little pocket that is involved in changing other molecules and and enabling signaling, for example. So it might be actually the case that the drug target may be structurally unsuitable for drug binding within that pocket where you want the small molecule to bind for chemical reasons. Now, this is really where I think AI has been extremely powerful because of that imaginative ability where like previously, you know, the chemists would sit down, they'd look at some structures that people have tried before, they look at the structure itself, they try to imagine some things and they go through and they iterate, they synthesize and test and design, synthesize and test. You know, with AI, you can usually get to an answer much faster. Some targets are also um, a bit more complex in how they're involved in various biological processes where, you know, targeting something, it might effectively treat the disease, but it might also, targeting that particular target with a drug may also cause toxicity just by the nature of the fact that that one protein is involved in some really important biological process. And so if you disrupt that biological process, it causes toxicity but it's also involved in the disease. So proteins can do different things in different contexts. You know, so the problem of safety is something that hasn't quite been cracked yet, but there's quite a few groups working on that. We're even, uh, we have a paper in submission on some new AI-based models where we can sort of predict how much a target is involved in these types of pathways that might cause toxicity if you target them. So that's certainly a question that we can get to, but there's, there's a ton of work that needs to be done there. Another issue is selectivity. The drug target may not be unique to the disease causing cells if it is a certain cell that's causing the disease. So disrupting that target may also affect other healthy cells. Even within a certain cell, there may also be other targets that look very similar to the one that you're trying to target. And so coming up with this idea of finding something that's really going to only target what you want to target is really difficult. Um, there's also physical considerations like where inside the cell is the target. Believe it or not, like targeting different parts of the inside of a cell can be more or less difficult. Imagine different barriers and walls as you move from the outside of the cell into the nucleus um, that you might have to go through a few different membranes and uh, maybe some different ion channels in order to get to where you want to go to actually have the effect um, that you want to have. There's a lot of other factors to consider, like functional redundancy, sometimes targeting one thing, you know, nature has a way possibly of compensating with another way of coming in and causing disease along the same pathway, just not um, using the target that you're trying to block uh, with your drug. And then, you know, there's also drug resistance (laughs) where like, for example, in cancer, cancer is a genetic disease and in, in many different cancers, there's a lot of different sort of heterogeneity that happens there. 
And so by maybe treating certain groups of cancer cells, there's others that can can grow and that are kind of only selecting for a subset of those. And in general, heterogeneity of diseases is a problem. So just, you know, disease is often classified by how it looks at the patient level and maybe at the molecular level, there are some really major differences between patients that sort of present the same types of problems. But if you treat a group of patients with a drug, maybe only some of those patients will actually respond to that drug because of what's actually causing it at the molecular level that you know, isn't really very clear at the clinical level. So those are some a few examples. No, because I, I was going to say that just because you can find something that will bind to a target doesn't mean, okay, we're done. There's so much more involved. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But biology is extremely complicated. The chemistry is complicated. You know, there's sort of this epidemiology aspect to it as well that can be can be really tough to overcome. And yeah. that's not even mentioning the commercial aspect. Or once you have something, even if it's effective, it works in all patients. It's super safe. You know, is it actually going to make money, which is how you actually get it into patients? And I know that we hear a lot about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and also quantum computing. Is quantum computing involved in this? And how does that fit in? That's, that's a good question. I think the era of quantum computing, in my personal opinion, um, hasn't quite reached us yet. But a lot of people are sort of looking at really what could be the next type of math that could really revolutionize this space. I think some people would even argue that drug discovery and development, AI hasn't really fully had its day yet. If you look at this sort of our niche, the silicon medicines niche, uh, most of the AI-driven companies are really, really young. And I'm talking about like early 2010s, the mid 2010s. Most of them are kind of founded around that time. So if you think about the amount of time it takes to develop a drug and then to get it through, more importantly, clinical trials, we haven't really gotten there yet. I think most experts would say that there hasn't really been a drug that is fully informed from end to end with AI that has made it fully through clinical trials and is actually given to patients at this point. Um, I think in silicon medicines in the lead with our lead candidate, but you know, we'll, we'll see the race is still on. And people, you know, I think every time our CEO posts anything on LinkedIn, he's actually shown uh, you know, me his analytics before tens of thousands of big pharma, you know, really important people out there are watching to see what kind of updates he has. Uh, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? You know, what, what are going to be the phase two readouts? Is it effective? Is it safe? And there's other, you know, AI driven companies that uh, have their own molecules in the clinic as well at this time. So you know, I think we're all just really waiting to see if that's effective. And you know, these early cases could change the minds of, of investors, of scientists, as far as what is the final verdict of, you know, is AI really ready to have the impact that we sort of imagined it would have just a few years ago. In terms of quantum computing, I think this is certainly an area where we are in investigating as well. You know, we're an AI-driven company because of our expertise, but we certainly have quite a lot of diverse expertise in-house. And we're trying to think how we take different approaches to answering some of these really basic problems in um, especially drug design, imagining new molecules, simulating binding of drugs to targets, designing new drugs. Like there's really a, a lot of really hard problems. And, you know, just because we start it in one place, we have a certain type of expertise. We don't want to be, you know, the guy with the hammer looking for a nail. And so we're, we're really just trying to explore all the different options. I would say that's, that's about as far as I can go with it for now. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what actually happens if, you know, AI will rule the day, if 
quantum computing will take over next uh, or not. I think it's you know yet to be seen. Is AI evolving incredibly quickly in terms of what you're doing with drug discovery and what kind of scales of improvement is that making in terms of cost and time? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So in terms of preclinical drug discovery, AI has developed extremely fast and made huge, huge, huge strides. This is all work before the clinic in terms of picking a target, designing, especially small molecules, proteins, other like large molecules, other modalities. I think that is still in flux where there's a lot of groups and, you know, we're also in this space too, doing really great work. But in terms of small molecules, you know, traditionally this time period would be five, six, seven years. And that's not even counting possibly decades of work on the target in academia, where, you know, people have been looking to the biology of different diseases for a very long time and just maybe haven't tried to commercialize it. But if you're you know, starting from scratch, you want to get ready to have a molecule that's ready to be tested in the clinic. Some estimates have been around the five, six year mark ballpark. Whereas with our lead candidate program, we've been able to go from nothing to something ready to go into the clinic in only 30 months. So that's a pretty huge time savings. And if you look at the cost savings as well, we're talking about like, you know, a whole factor of maybe 10 <laughs> uh, in terms of, of cost savings. But really, most importantly, it's more about getting effective, safe drugs to patients faster. So at the end of the day, the ultimate shareholders, right? <laughs> Um, and there's a lot of barriers in the clinic. And after that, that you know, AI hasn't really made as huge strides on. But uh, in terms of preclinical work, it's been absolutely huge. There's papers being published really on a weekly basis in this space. Um, as I mentioned, also, most of the participants are, are still new companies in the grand scheme of things. And so the whole space is really, I would say, still young, up for grabs, sort of in the early development cycles, uh, I would argue none of them are really mature yet. And then depending on your modality, like what type of therapy you're developing, it could be entirely new and you might be cutting new grass like every day. <laughs> Looking at your website, there's an awful lot coming out of your company. And one of the most recent things, I guess, is a partnership with the University of Toronto. And if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we absolutely love working with academics. Uh, as an alliance manager, one of the things that I do is sort of manage our collaborations with different academics around the world. Um, we apply for grants with them. We love to co-apply for grants with academics. We do pretty often and then work on the project with them when we get the grant. I think they like to work with us because, you know, we have the brand, we have the expertise uh, in the space, and we delivered on so many projects successfully and on time. So we also like to be connected to, you know, what is cutting edge? in the field and also validating with publications what our models, our algorithms can actually do in sort of real world scenarios and at least like research-based scenarios. So the University of Toronto, they do a lot of good work. There's a particular researcher, it's uh, Igor Stagjar, so he's a molecular geneticist and professor there. We're sort of partnering with him to test the ability of our platform to design molecules against these quote-unquote undruggable targets. So basically just targets that have been out of the reach of these more conventional therapeutics. This lab has developed really fascinating assays to test somewhere around like 15 to 20 of these undruggable targets as a part of the collaboration. Um, we'll use the platform, identify them, and then to design the molecules as well, focusing really in on cancer 
and specific types of cancer genes, and then focusing on those cancer gene products, the proteins that have specific types of protein-protein interactions. So the idea here is that we pick the targets with our platform, we design molecules with our platform, and then we validate them using this technology that this lab has developed for confirming disruption of certain types of protein interactions inside of a cell, um, as opposed to more artificial systems. It makes a lot of sense. It's like a perfect, I think, marriage and and a a good example of how we can work with academic labs to really um, develop hypotheses and validate them very quickly for publications, for grants, uh, and really ultimately for real world impact of something that could hopefully treat patients. Obviously, everyone's different, but what kind of timescales do you look at from being able to turn this into, I guess, a phase three trial that eventually works with patients? Great question. I mentioned sort of the, the preclinical timescale. It's, it's really more on like one to two year timescale at this point. I think there's even room for it to get much less than that. Um, our lead candidate, like I said, was 30 months. Once it gets into the labs, there's a whole new set of barriers there that, you know, in silicon medicine hasn't really started to tackle at this time. Um, as an academic lab, I think a lot of our expertise has been early in the drug discovery process where you know, we believe the biggest impact in terms of chance of success can come through because when you look at why do clinical trials fail, focusing in especially on small molecules, there's really two overwhelming reasons. Uh, they're not effective and they're not and or they're not safe. We think that in both of those cases, a lot of these drugs are not effective and or not safe because they're picking the wrong target. They could be picking the wrong target. I mean, they could also design a molecule that um, is either ineffective or unsafe for other reasons as well. So um, we really wanted to focus on where we can make the biggest impact and where our expertise was as well. Once it gets into the clinic, honestly, those timelines have not really changed much from sort of the, the traditional approaches. And so we tend to partner with other organizations that have shown the ability to quickly push good molecules through the clinic rigorously in clinical trials. A lot of the inefficiency there has to do with, you know, identifying the right patients, sort of organizing the trial, getting buy-in from the different organizations that will actually run the trial, things like training all the staff and doctors that are going to be involved and recording the data and sort of keeping track of the progress of the trials and different randomized and other types of uh, legal and scientific reporting that's required. It's a pretty massive undertaking. And I think the more you involve people in the process, the more things get mucked down, (laughs) especially, you know, when you have people who doctors that are really busy, other medical professionals that have a lot on their plate, you have patients that are sick, a lot of really hard problems that I think are more Human problems uh, are going to take a little bit longer to address, but getting drugs through phase three, like it'll depend on the indication, right? So some types of diseases um, are very acute. They happen quickly and you'll be able to tell very quickly, does the drug work or not? Whether that is a deadly disease or not, it can be acute. It can also be very chronic where some of these diseases, you know, take decades. Uh, Maybe it's a very slow growing tumor or it's a long-term uh, infection or uh, you know autoimmune disease, where the treatment itself may take a couple of years to properly measure is this drug being effective or not, and we need to expect it to take that long. And so, a lot of the details do matter of the trial, where it's being held, who's actually running the trial, what type of disease is it, what are you actually targeting to really give you an idea how long that's going to take. We're still talking several years here. We're talking you know 
four to 10 years. So it's really, really hard to say, but we specialize in finding partners that do it quickly because that's, that's one of our moniker. And I think down the road, that's really the area where AI could have the biggest impact on delivering drugs faster to patients. Because as of right now, like the last few years, the um, number of approved drugs isn't increasing because it can only test drugs so fast. Uh, and there's actually a whole law about this, called the Ewoom's law. It's like the opposite of Moore's law. Where over time, approving drugs becomes slower and more expensive over time. You mentioned the work with the University of Toronto is with cancer. Are there other indications that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, there, there's there's quite a few. We have a number of collaborations with different academic partner, partners um, really all, all around the world uh, at this point. And we have a number of grants that are in submission at the moment, actually. You know, I'm not going to mention ones that are sort of in progress, just confidentiality reasons. But if you look at our publication record, you can see we've made pretty huge contributions and done really cool work in ALS and NASH and really a variety of other diseases. And all of our publications are on the website and salupa.com forward slash publications and all really sortable by the category. And you can kind of look at those. That's one of the most enjoyable parts of my job is uh, the ability to sort of interact with these researchers, see the latest cutting edge work and see how our technology can immediately impact their research programs and outcomes for eventually for patients. So it's really, really, really fun working with these people. I was an academic myself for about a decade and I've recovered, but still a lot of fun to just get to work with them now from a different perspective. I appreciate at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned the name of Canada's biggest city without saying how it is pronounced there and most people do call it Toronto. But if you're from there, you're a Torontonian. Anyway, it's not the only place in the world that isn't pronounced the way it looks. Probably an entire podcast episode on that. Anyway, AI is here to stay and its impact in biotech is only going to grow. Don't forget to check out the latest news and articles at labiotech.eu. And I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time for another Beyond Biotech.